The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for your word. Without it, we would be lost and wandering in our own ignorance and misunderstanding, but you have spoken. You've made the truth clear to us in writing, and now I pray that you would, by your Spirit, make the truth clear to us, understood within. Do that work, Lord, this morning. There, there are perhaps some things here that will be challenging to understand, some things not. We're all in different places and we all hear things that touch us in different, different ways and I pray that, Spirit of God, you would minister your truth to our hearts individually and personally. Speak what we need to hear and make it clear. Open your word to us now, we pray, Lord, and build your church. We pray it for your honor and for our good. Thank you. Amen. The great people of the Bible, those whom God wrote about so that we could all know how God used them, those are important people. They're listed in the Hebrews Hall of Fame. We refer to them by their first names and we know who we mean, Moses, Paul. Some of them have books of the Bible named after them. Some apostles have great church buildings or whole school campuses even, on some calendars, even holidays that bear their names. Not because of what they did. We, we who are Christians, we understand that it's, it's not actually about them. It's about what God did in them and through them. But they were specially chosen for works and times in which God did big things. They are a big deal. And if you're a Christian you have equal standing with all of them. That's what the opening of the book of 2 Peter reminds us of. Certainly we all have different gifts and and we're called to different tasks. Some of us called to positions of authority to whom the rest of us have to submit. That's also affirmed here, that's for sure true. But the opening of this letter wants to remind us that we are not stuck in the back seat, second class people of God behind the big guys whether the apostles or some other important prominent Christian leader of the day, we each have been given an identical faith to each of them, great and precious for each believer, Paul and Moses and Peter and you. This book that we're beginning today is called Second Peter, but we shouldn't think of it as something like First Peter Part 2. It's not First Peter continued. It, it certainly bears some resemblance to 1 Peter, but it's, it's going in a different direction. It's actually much more like the book of Jude, as we'll see. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 2 is extremely similar to the book of Jude. In some ways, they're dealing with, with similar issues. Slightly different, but similar. Jude faced false teachers that had, you recall, snuck in from the outside unawares. 
And they brought in them with them some certain problems. But Second Peter deals with those who have been always among us from young, young ages, from early times, and were apparently Christians, but then turned away. And so they present differently. They have a different influence. They, they look differently, and what they teach is also different. Jude's false teachers talked about an emphasis on the, uh, the denial of the authority of Jesus and a, and a twisting of grace that kind of makes it as if everything's permissible now. We can do whatever, we, whatever feels good to us, whatever seems right in our own eyes. Whereas Second Peter, the issue is less about twisting grace and more about misunderstanding end times. There's, there's something here amongst this group of people that are, that are false teachers where they just didn't think the end times was going to happen, that there wasn't going to be a judgment. This is written near the very end of Peter's life. Probably, actually, he's speaking it to someone else who writes down his thoughts. And by this point in time, there were some in the church, apparently, who had kind of thought, by now, if it was going to happen, it would have happened. It's not going to happen. There is no return of Christ. So there is no judgment. So eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die and that's it. That's, that's the attitude that stands behind this book of 2 Peter. So we're going to talk about some of those things going ahead. What of God and his righteousness and Christ's coming and his judgment? How do we know these things? Where, where do we get all this? Why, why can we trust it? We'll talk about that with other things along the way, of course. But this morning we begin, just in the very beginning of the letter, with some simple affirmations about the faith that is ours. Some things that are familiar, perhaps, maybe some things that are new. But he's just beginning to affirm some of the basics that sets up also topics that we'll be coming on later. So that's where we begin today, Second Peter, verses 1 and 2. Let me read them and then draw out two observations from them. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It's the beginning of the letter. Two observations. Here's the first. Though beneath the apostles, we've been given the same faith as them. Though beneath the apostles, and we are, we've been given the same faith as them. We have. This letter begins like letters of that day always did. With, with some sort of a greeting from the writer, here identified as Simeon Peter, which is the Jewish way of saying Simon. It's the Apostle Peter, and he's a servant, he first says, literally a slave, which is language that can be applied to all Christians. The Bible is clear that we are all servants or slaves of Christ, claimed by and owned by him. But when it's talking in some settings like this, when it it has a particular little bent to it. While, while it's talking about something humble and lowly for sure, it's also talking about someone who's been claimed and set aside for a work. It's often ascribed to ministers, particularly here because it's paired with the next word, apostle. Peter is a claimed, owned worker 
set aside as an apostle, a servant sent on a mission with a message. The basic idea behind apostle in the Bible, they are the eyewitnesses of Christ, so there are not apostles like this present today. These are the eyewitnesses of Christ that Christ then claimed, owned for his own service and then sent them out as his emissaries with a message in their mouths, his word. And so that term, those two terms together, carry an authority to them. And if you look through the New Testament, what you often find, actually there's an interesting pattern, the writers of letters introduce themselves as apostles They pull rank in contexts where they know they're writing to people who are not inclined to follow. There is rank to be pulled, and they pull it when they need to. Peter says, I'm a servant of Jesus. His authoritative sent spokesman to tell you what he says, not my opinion, his. We the church stand beneath him, Peter, and all like him. So when the apostle Peter says something to us in this letter, or the apostle Paul, or the apostle John, and so on, it's God's word to us, to you, and we stand beneath it and are required to obey it. And Peter says that and underlines it here because he knows that in his particular context, just like in our day, there are people increasingly inclined, inclined to kind of make up their own truth. To adopt their own set of standards, their own worldview, kind of thinking like, if I repeat this enough times and I can get enough people to vote for it, then that will be the case. I will define reality by public opinion. It's all about numbers. Majority rules. Well, in a way, majority does rule, but majority does not determine truth. If the entire world voted for it and it was wrong, it would still be wrong. Peter knows he faces that kind of an audience, and we live in that kind of a world right now. Pick any kind of a hot-button issue, usually something that the Bible speaks on and our culture disagrees with. And what you will find is people, even within the church, kind of going like, mm, 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 how can I make something different out of this? Sexuality, the roles of men and women in the church, the exclusivity of Jesus, that he is the only way and everyone else who does not follow him perishes. Those things are taught in the Bible, rejected in the world, and in some quarters of the church are kind of questioned. And the apostle Peter says, here's the truth. In this particular letter, Here's the truth about righteousness, God's word, the return of Jesus, and the coming judgment. Here's the truth. And all that's binding on us, and we stand beneath it. Peter is a servant of Christ, Christ's apostle to us, and this is the word of the Lord. That's who's writing. And the next sentence, the recipients, which then turns and lifts up all of us. So if the first one kind of puts him above us and says like this, 
Then the second sentence says like this. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing. We are those who have obtained a faith, which might sound, maybe like first pass, might sound like we went out and got ourselves something. We went and picked one up. We obtained a faith. But actually, the language is quite the opposite. It's obtained, the language is obtained through lot. Something that we can't control at all. But the Bible's clear, God controls. So we obtained it through lot. Or, or to clarify, we could say something like obtained by God's will. If you're a Christian, by God's will, you have obtained a faith, a Christian spiritual existence. If you ask a random group of people, do you have a faith? And one will reply, yeah, sure, I'm a Muslim. Do you have a faith? Yeah, sure, I'm, I'm a Hindu, or no, I'm an atheist. We, ask us that, we, by God's will, not by our own doing, we have a faith, we trust in the Jesus Christ of the Bible and what he did on the cross and that has brought to us a new, distinctly Christ-centered existence. Do I have a faith? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Same as the apostles. Look at the next phrase there. It says, a faith of equal standing with ours, with the emphasis falling on equal same as, same value, same honor, just as precious, just as important. It is of equal standing, same as ours, that of the apostles and servants. So you're not just on equal footing with Peter because, hey, you're both just people. And we're not on equal footing because maybe like some of the writers, that, hey, we're both Hebrews, or hey, we're both Roman subjects, or hey, we're both men. We are of equal standing with him because we are of equal faith. We're both of the Christian faith. And how is that? Well, not because of us, but by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a lot left out of this phrase that the, the rest of our larger Christian understanding can fill in. It all has to do with the gospel. Jesus took our sin on himself as he died on the cross. Dying to pay for our sin. Not pay for half of it or 90% of it. Either we pay for it or he pays for it. And on the cross, he paid for sin. And in exchange, he gave to his people, all of them all alike, his righteousness. This is the exchange of the Bible. He takes the sin of his people and gives to his people his righteousness. Our unrighteousness on him, his righteousness on us. It's a great trade. It's the one that Christ worked on the cross. Given to you, Christian, just like it was given to Peter and Paul, John, all alike. So before God, I am righteous, just as righteous as Christ just as righteous as Peter. If you're a Christian, so are you. All of us, 100% the same. 
100% righteous, all because of the righteousness of Jesus, not in anything by us, not by our works, so that none of us would boast. The book of Ephesians. Which means, keep working on that in your mind, that everything that comes from God to those who are righteous, clean, accepted, it all comes to all of us all the same. If God welcomes righteous people into his presence and hears their prayers and answers them in grace and mercy, then he does that equally for each of his kids. Paul doesn't have his ear better than you do. If God has become providing father to his beloved children, then he meets the needs of all of them. That includes you too, not just Peter. It's all the same for all of us. He does what is right and just. And since I'm 100% righteous in his sight, and so are you and so is Peter, then we are all, all equally loved, equally pleasing, equally heirs of all the riches of heaven, whether rich or poor, male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, apostle or not. Or to put the same thing in reverse order, Christ would be unfair. Christ would be unjust if he were to say, you, child of mine, you're my favorite. I give to you special. You, child, I'm not so fond of you. You're a little bit socially awkward. You haven't really been very successful in life. Sometimes your mannerisms are off-putting and your sin, I mean. So you, here's the bounty of my riches, and you, he would be unjust if he treated his people like that. We have a standing that is equal. We have a faith that is the same. Equally people who are equal objects of grace. Equally people who live in the peace of God under his promises. Hear this if you think you're somebody. And hear this if you think you're nobody. Both. Now, quick aside, because I'm, I'm sure it is kind of a, a question in some of our minds. Our sin does have consequences. Yeah. And sometimes God disciplines our sin. Yes. But not out of frustration. That's actually because of his grace and his love. And certainly we all have different gifts and we've all been called to different settings and different times and different tasks for sure. And some of those gifts do seem more important, and some of them gather more public acclaim, and some of us live in times that we are called to do unique things. Some of us are Peter, or are a Martin Lloyd-Jones, or a John Piper. Most of us aren't. And, and so those folks do look different. They do have a different set of circumstances around them, but they do not have a different dose of grace or a higher level of pleasure in the eyes of God. We kind of have to, have to 
take that in because it is extremely easy to compare. Especially if you're one of those whose gifts are less pronounced or more behind the scenes sort of things and you haven't met with any publicly acclaimed success. Some of us never struggle with being second class Christians and some of us do their whole lives because you just aren't as good as other people. You just kind of feel like God gives me the leftovers. I eat the crumbs after those people have seated at, been seated at the table. That's not true. It's not true of you. It is often said that the ground is level at the cross, meaning that we all come to him equally, all in need of him equally, and all repentant but here's also the truth that the ground is level walking away from the empty tomb. We all are still equally in need of him and all still equally objects of his grace. We are a single people who walk with him in new life equally because of all that we are given and all that we have, it is all by God's grace according to Christ's righteousness. We are Christians alike by grace not by works, not because of us. So that's, that's the first point here. We stand beneath the apostles and equal with them. Both at the same time. Beneath them in the way that God has assigned authority, but equal to them in value and standing. And if you think about that, oh my, that's like, that runs through all of life. That's, that's the way it is in, in church structures, in all kinds of organizational authority structures. That's the way it is in marriages. There is authority and submission and equality. All through life, same thing. But the emphasis here is on how do we stand before God beneath his authoritative apostles and of equal faith by the righteousness of Christ. And the second point then moves to tell us a little bit about what that life is kind of like. Here's the second observation. A rich and deep life comes from knowing the one true God. A rich and deep life comes from knowing the one true God. Verse 2 is the Christian version of what was the common blessing of the day at the beginning of letters. Here it serves almost like a prayer. It's a blessing. It's almost kind of a may God do this, may God would you do this. It's, it's a pronouncement of a blessing. It's also kind of like a prayer, and we're talking about the blessings of God. May the, God, may the grace of God, may the peace of God be multiplied to you. So we're going to talk about that, but as we do, let me point out briefly that this verse is very directly and very closely connected to verses 3 and 4, which we'll be talking about next week. Very closely connected. So some of what I'm saying this morning is going to be repeated next week, and some of what I could say this morning I'm not going to say to get to hold it off for next week. So there's, there's some connection there, and you can see the connection to verse 3 in this word knowledge. That shows up in verse 2. It's an important topic throughout the whole book. Verses 2 and 3 use the same word for knowledge, which is different from the word down in verses 5 and 6. 
you glance ahead at that. Both those words are very similar. They're very similar. But that being said, we do have two different words here that are paired with themselves in different contexts. So there is something here, something that's being alerted to us here, that that we have slightly different aspects of knowledge before us here in chapter 1. Today and next week, we should be thinking about, if we're thinking slightly different, the words are similar, but slightly leaning towards a knowledge that has already happened to us. An understanding that we have arrived at already. That's the slight bent of this word. Something that we are, have already kind of come to and settled into a little more deeply. That's the kind of knowledge here. Verses 5 and 6 talks a little bit more about the knowledge you go out and get, you learn. Close, but slightly different. So, knowledge here, verse 2. May God's grace and peace be multiplied to you. How, why, on what basis can God do that? In the knowledge of the one true God. What do we know about this one true God? What have we come to and, and settled into already? Even from these, just these two verses. Well, the one true God is Father and Son, and we could add in Spirit. He is triune. That's right here, and this is so often how the Bible teaches the three-in-one nature of God. Almost in an offhanded, incidental, assumed way. You never find in the Bible, now here's a lesson about the Trinity. It's just there. In an offhanded, assumed way, like it is right here. Verse 1, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's one person. Jesus Christ, who is called our God and Savior. This short book of 2 Peter calls Jesus Savior more than any other book in the New Testament. It's a statement, actually. Savior, Jesus, not Caesar, as the culture sometimes called him and other rulers. Caesar's not the Savior. And actually... The Bible very often calls God Savior. So Jesus is Savior, not Caesar. Jesus is Savior like God is. And oh, what do you know? He's also called God. Where does the Bible call Jesus God? Right here for one. Now, some try to make this a statement about two distinct entities, like verse 2 is. We'll come to that in a second. Verse 2 is a statement about two distinct entities. But grammatically, verse 1 makes that very, very, very unlikely. The grammar is especially built grammar to make it one person. Verse 1 is carefully worded differently than verse 2, very similarly to chapter 1, verse 11. Glance down at chapter 1, verse 11. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Very similar wording. 
But actually, verse 1 of our book is most similar to the very last verse of the book. Flip ahead to the very end of 2 Peter, and you see wording that is even closer. In English, it reads the same, but in Greek, the wording is very similar. Very last verse, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Pretty similar to the first book, verse of the book, bookends. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our God and Savior Jesus Christ. The bookends of this book, Jesus alone, our Lord and our God. Like the Apostle Thomas realized when he put his finger in the holes of Jesus' wrists. My Lord and my God. That's what we have come to know, to be settled into also. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, is God Almighty, the Savior. And yet in verse 2, Jesus, our Lord, and God are two distinct entities. Persons, we usually say. The grammar in verse 2 is just as clear as the grammar of verse 1 in the other direction. And this is, in fact, how verse 2 speaks, is, in fact, how the Bible more commonly talks about God and Jesus. God usually refers to God the Father, and Lord is usually referring to Jesus, to Christ. And so here we have back-to-back verses at the beginning of this book where we have Jesus the Lord who is God and Jesus the Lord who is not God the Father. All of that in the biblical context where it is emphatically clear there is only one true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. There's only one true God and this one God exists in three distinct persons. God the Father God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Spirit, who, though not mentioned here, is elsewhere described, called God, and shown to be God. The one true God is triune. Now, this is actually not Peter's point, which is kind of the point. He just assumes that we all know that God is triune because that's who God is. And so repeatedly when the Bible teaches the triunity of God, it teaches it just like that. So we need to stop and pause on that and, and kind of notice this. The Bible constantly and consistently affirms one God in three persons. Now, moving on, let me talk about my real point because that's assumed Who is this God, this three-in-one single God? Well, what have we seen about him here? Well, he is righteous. He is holy and pure, completely so, and very much unlike us here in this fallen world. He is holy, 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 and at the same time, he is the God who saves, Savior, saves in grace and makes peace with us, grace and peace. That, that's all he is here in just these couple of verses. At the very same time, 
check how you think about the attributes of God. Do you sometimes think he is this way and then sometimes this way? Sometimes he is righteous and at other times he is gracious. Sometimes he is just and other times he is patient and lets things go. He is all things all at once. Complex, for sure. That's who he is. And we could go further into that and and further into the attributes of God and what it is that he's like. But really, for this morning, we should actually narrow our focus rather than expand it. Because all that we've been considering here, the triunity of God, his righteousness, his, his saving grace nature, all of that could remain stuff kind of out there, like info that I know. And Peter's actually trying to press something more personal. You haven't come to know info, you've come to know a person. Something more personal here. The knowledge that we have settled in, that we have arrived in and kind of come to rest in, is the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We have come to know God. Not just no truth about him, to know God personally is something very different. Human beings by nature do not know God. And in ourselves, we can't change that. But God in grace decided to make himself known to us and he acted in the world. Over long centuries he did many things and then he gave the scriptures to to kind of explain some of the truths about himself and show what he would do. But then lastly he sent Jesus to earth because that was needed if we were going to know God personally. To know him relationally like a friend or maybe like a strong good parent. So Jesus lived and he taught And then he died, and in doing so showed us very much, showed us a lot of the truth about God and about ourselves that we need to know. But the key thing that God did in Christ for us, when he sent Christ to the earth, the key thing that he did so that we could know him personally was that he paid for our sin in Jesus' death. In doing that, He removed the barrier that was between us and God and broke us free from a bondage. It's like when we we turned away from God, as the Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We all have turned away from him. We turned away and said, no thanks, I don't want you. I'm going to go my own way. Something happened there. A barrier was built between us. An alienation happened. And then we kind of got if you will, stuck there, like you get a kink in your back or something. You, you get bound up, an impingement happens, and even if we wanted to, part of the impingement is that we don't want to. The Bible says no one seeks God, no, not one. Not the real God, not the true God. There's a barrier there, and we are stuck, turned away. And what God did was he said, I see the problem, and he sent Christ to earth to pay for our sin, to remove the barrier and break us free. A new life, a spiritual freedom comes upon us. A new life, the Bible describes it as, a new heart, new eyes. And so made free now. We look and we see God. He calls us, hey, over here, come. We turn and we see him now with new eyes and we move towards him, the God who is beautiful and good and gracious. 
God broke down the barrier of sin, broke the bondage that held us away from him, summoned us to him, gave us eyes to see, opened wide his arms and said, come. And then you came. The righteousness of Christ on the cross did all of that for you. Brought you near. Set free and called back with new eyes and new hearts you came and with open arms he welcomed you like the father welcomed back the prodigal son. And you are now in relationship with God, Christian. You know him and he lives in you and speaks to you and leads you and corrects you and comforts and encourages and blesses and multiplies grace and peace onto your life. Because you're his and he loves you. You are in relationship with him. This verse is reminding us that grace and peace comes in knowing God. It's a byproduct of our relationship with him. You are an object of his favor, which means with certainty that all will be well for you. You know the one true living God, eternal and triune, righteous Savior, you are at peace with the Almighty. How can it not go well for you? This comes only in knowing God, and God wanted you to have it. And so he moved heaven and earth and a really big stone to make it happen. Now, most of us here are Christians. Not all of us, but most of us here are Christians. And we should park here for a second. Now, already, probably, already we've spent far more time on these verses than most people do. But the reason that we park here and consider them, and I encourage you now to mentally put your, put your mind to, you know, disengage the gears and kind of sit for a second here. You did not know God. And we're alone in the world without hope. And could not do anything about that. That was you. There was a moment in your life when you realized, oh my goodness, and you became a Christian. But for a lot of us, not all of us, but for a lot of us, that was some time back, and maybe you've kind of forgotten that. You've forgotten what it was like to live in the world lost. Utterly confused. For some period of time, you try this, and you bank on that, and then you try something else, and you're just back and forth. You don't know which end is up. You turn on the radio to find out what other people say is, is right. You, you, you surf the internet to find out what, what should I be doing. You, you're, just, you're just awash in options and none of them actually have any greater credence to them than anything else but you just kind of back and forth and all of it feels like, ah, 
lost. Sometimes, maybe this is you, maybe this is you right now, you get that exactly. Because you're, you're bouncing off, walking through the, the world, I don't know what to do. But a lot of times, especially in this area of this country at this time, a lot of people feel like, I got plenty of hope. I'm hoping in the warmer weather to come, I got some vacation plans, I just bought a new trailer, I got a promotion at work, I hope in perpetual health, kids that grow up strong and healthy and give me beautiful grandkids, and we kind of ride off into the sunset for forever. Life is good, man, what are you talking about? You're crazy, maybe for other people. Two problems with that. Those hopes don't come. But when they do come, they don't do it. And something's still missing, and you know it. You, you double down, you try it harder, you try it again, you, you plan the, the better vacation, you buy the larger trailer, but you know it. Some hopes don't come, but then the ones that do just don't quite do it. And you're still kind of wondering, something's missing, what is it? I don't know what it is. And then you die and you face the judgment and you find out. If that's where you are right now, this is a good and mighty saving God who is calling to you right now with open arms, come and you will know him. But Christian, that's where you were. And the only reason you are not there right now is that God did not want you to be there. And sent his son to the earth so that you would know him. He tore down the barrier that you had erected. He broke you free from the, the impingement that was of your own doing. And he called you back and gave you life and now pours onto you grace and peace and grace and peace. And when that's over, grace and peace and grace and peace. Because you stand in grace, a beloved object of his eternal affection. He loves you with an everlasting love by his own choice. You are righteous in his sight. And when he comes back, which he will, and when he judges the earth, which he will, he will receive you into his eternal glory. He will. You have obtained an awesome faith all by the grace of God. What a kind, kind God he is. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. 
Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.